Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. What's up, everybody? Thank you for listening to the show. Okay, folks, so... If you've been following me on my social channels, or you know me personally, or you've seen some of my videos, you will know, especially my Africa videos, by the way. And if you have not seen my Africa videos, check them out. It's called This Is Africa. Just go to CorbinMaxi.com and then click the tab where you see Africa. But anyway, uh, you'll know, for some reason, I am obsessed with hippos and hyenas. Now, uh, I don't even know why. I just have always been fascinated with, you know, hippos and hyenas and, you know, really hyenas in particular. And when I started this show, this podcast, it's almost been two years. My God, how time flies. Uh, yeah, side note. My God, time is just flying by like crazy. But I was going to say, uh, you know, when I started the show two years ago, there was a researcher I wanted to have on the show, Dr. K. Holkamp. She has been studying hyenas for over 30 years in Kenya's Maasai Mara. And when I was in the Mara, I saw one of her research vehicles and I thought, oh my goodness, I would just die. Seriously, I would love to talk to a hyena researcher. Like, what is that like studying one of the world's most misunderstood animals? And so for two years, I have tried to get her on the show. And I'll tell you what, it was harder to get her on the show than like Jack Hanna. And <laughs> the reason why is she's a serious, you know, researcher and she's out there in the field from, I think she said from May till, you know, September, August, she's out there in Africa, living and researching hyenas. And I just, oh my God, she's just a wealth of information. And I really learned so much about these animals. And I really hope you enjoy it. For those of you listening who are like turned on the podcast and you're like, oh, gross, hyenas. Oh my God, I wanted something cute like a lion. Please, please give hyenas a chance. The public perception is really bad of hyenas. And you know, we're really trying to change it. And I'm hoping by the end of the interview, you'll actually gain a new appreciation for hyenas and might possibly love them like I do. Now, usually this show is family friendly, but I do have to, you know, kind of say a warning. There is a portion though near the end where we do talk about the very unusual uh, hyena reproductive system. It does not get graphic, but I don't want you guys listening to the show that all of a sudden near the end, you know, with your kids hearing something like, wait, he just said a what? Okay. So anyway, uh, just a fair warning. It's not bad, but it's all scientific, but it's something people need to know. Uh, and it's interesting. With that said, before we get onto the interview with Dr. Holcamp, uh, please make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to the show uh, and leave a rating and review. The reviews keep on coming in and it's awesome. Um, I really appreciate it. If you do a review, any review, take a screenshot, send it to me, and I will give you a personal shout out with one of the animals. And it's a really fun time. And it's great to hear like feedback to you know see what episodes you like. I love it. Also, keep on sending in your guest suggestions. We are nearing up to season three, which I cannot wait. It will be, you know, bigger and better and I guess that's what you're supposed to say. It's still going to be cool. Uh, so yeah, send in your guest suggestions. Uh, with that said, I hope you enjoy my interview with Dr. Kay Holcamp from Michigan State University. She is a hyena researcher and you're going to love it. And we're good there. Oh my gosh, Dr. Kay Holcamp, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure, you're welcome. So I'll tell you what, I started this podcast nearly two years ago and you were at the very, very top of my list to interview on the show. So thank you. It took two years, but now you're here. Well, 
You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and I actually found about your really unique, um, you know, research project. And by the way, I guess I should introduce you. You, of course, teach at Michigan State University, and you have over 30 plus years of experience researching one of the world's most misunderstood and malign creatures, the hyena. The spotted hyena, in particular, right? <laughs> yeah, the spotted hyena. And I just want to say, I found out about you in Kenya. I was over um, with the with the Peregrine Fund for the Vulture Research Project, and I was so fascinated with hyenas. And I saw one of your vehicles, and I was like, I'm hooked. I have to get her on the show. <laughs> well, it's good. I'm glad you got to Kenya. Everybody should go there. It's awesome. Absolutely. So, Dr. Holcamp, can you just tell me a little bit about how you got into this line of work? Uh, well, I was... Um having lunch one day when I was a postdoctoral uh, fellow at uh, University of California at Santa Cruz with the guy who had been my PhD mentor as a, as in, in grad school at UC Berkeley. And uh, while I was doing this PhD, this postdoctoral work, he actually started a captive colony of hyenas at UC Berkeley. And uh, when I was having lunch with him this day, he'd had the colony going for a couple of years at this point, And he said, um, you know, it's the strangest thing. Whereas in nature, females are socially dominant to males in this captive environment. Uh, males are just as likely to dominate females as vice versa. And I said, wow, that's interesting. And he says, yeah, wouldn't it be cool for somebody to now go out into nature and study how spotted hyenas acquire their social ranks and how females come to dominate males because something's obviously different in the captive environment. And I said, yeah, that'd be really cool. And he said, I thought you'd be a good person to do that. And I said, wow, okay, well, I've wanted to do something like that since I was a little kid. So where do I sign? And I'm happy to go do it. And he said, um, well, you just need to go get yourself an NSF grant and go go do it. And so obviously it wasn't that, that simple, but that is what happened ultimately. Now, Kay, did you know a lot about hyenas back then, or did you just have the perception of what the media had just portrayed them as these nasty scavengers? Um, n no. I mean, I'd been uh, traveling around the world with my ex-husband in 1975 and six, and we had spent – um, um, about six weeks in East Africa where we rented a two wheel drive Renault and drove all over the place, having a million flat tires every day. And we <laughs> um, saw a lot of hyenas and I was really fascinated by the fact that, you know, they ran down a wildebeest right next to our car. And I said, I turned to Rick and I said, wow, I thought those things were supposed to be skulking carrion eaters. And he, he said, yes, yeah, so did I. And then I went home and I, uh, read Hans Crook's wonderful book, which I've subsequently read about 150 times. And, um, realized that yeah they're good hunters wow and so how long did it take you to get the grant and then when do you finally land in kenya uh let's see i think i started writing that grant in 1986 it got turned down the first time but the second time it got funded so um i got permission to to go start the work and i actually went there in may of 1988 May of 1988. Okay, can you just give a visual for all my listeners around the world of what Kenya is like, what the Maasai Mara is like? I mean, when you first go in there. Yeah, it's the spectacular open rolling grassland with enormous skies and beautiful cloud formations above it. And it's just covered with animals. <laughs> and in 1988, I'm sure there were a lot more animals, too. I, I just couldn't even imagine. Yeah, we've actually been monitoring the abundances of all the different um, creatures in, in the Mara, at least all the mammals in the Mara. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, numbers have, have been declining pretty steadily since the 80s. Okay, so you are, you set up camp, and I'm just trying to get a visual. Is it just you? Do you have a research assistant, or is it just you out there in the field at first when you're in 1988, when you're in the Mara? 
Um, no, originally it was um, um, my colleague Laura Smale and I. We we actually lived out there together for about four and a half years, um, and um, then she decided that uh, you know she would actually like to go get a regular faculty position, so she left, and then I ultimately um, did the same thing, and we started having um, both American and Kenyan research assistants, and. You know, it just used to be Laura and me and, and one little Maasai guy, and now it's a cast of thousands. It's ridiculous. There are two different camps and, you know, dozens of employees. It's it's it really spiraled sort of out of control. You're like the Jane Goodall <laughs> of hyenas. Yeah, sometimes people say that, and um, I, I actually just, just really have come to love these animals. I think they're awesomely interesting. I think by far the most interesting animals out there, and um, and there are many many different kinds of animals and if these are the most interesting ones that's saying a lot because there's a lot of interesting animals there yeah let's let's talk about how interesting they are let's just talk about the hyena just give me give me some information some fun facts maybe some people listening don't know too much about hyenas um yeah let's just get into it and talk about how cool they are sure they sort of look like um a cross between a dog and a little bear, I guess. They're sort of fuzzy looking, um, but but they have that funny stance where their hind legs appear to be shorter than the front forelegs, and and they they you know they are 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 sloped uh, with great huge massive head and shoulders and neck, and um, they're descended very recently within the last some, something like 196,000 years to a 90 um, well roughly a million years ago somewhere in the last million years these animals first appear, and. Um, they are quite extraordinary because, um, in contrast to um, any other um, mammalian carnivore that you can think of, you know, their societies don't look like the societies of lions or meerkats or uh, wolves, whatever, whatever other carnivore you can think of. Their hyena societies don't look anything like that. They're much more like the societies of baboons and macaques and other oh. other primates. So. Okay. Um, okay. that's one of the things that I find most interesting about them. So they live in these groups. We've had a group of, that contained over 130 individuals, which was enormous. And, uh, they all knew one another and they defend a common territory together and they rear their cubs together at a communal den. And, um, and the, the, each clan is structured by a linear dominance hierarchy, just like you find in baboons. But in the case of the hyenas, the interesting and weird thing is that the females are socially dominant to all the breeding males, which would not be the case in monkeys because typically the males are considerably larger. Than, than females um, but other reasons I find them fascinating is just because um, they're descended immediately from carrion feeding ancestors their closest living relatives the brown and the striped hyena are carrion feeders but this is a very um, good hunting animal they um, you know they kill uh, the prey animal once out of every um, three or four times they try um, which is exactly what cheetahs do and wolves and lions you know they have a, a third to a 25 percent success rate when they hunt and so do hyenas and they can run 50 over 55 kilometers an hour we know this because we've driven along next to them and, and looked at our speedometer so their 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 postcranial anatomy is actually adapted for cursorial hunting which is in contrast to what you what the postcranial anatomies look like in other living bone cracking hyenas and they can they've got because they're recently de descended from carrion feeders, they've got these massive skulls that um, take years and years to actually fully mature so that, you know, they can tear up and consume just enormous chunks of food and swallow like a whole 
joint of a gazelle, you know, just one bite and they're, they swallowed it. And, uh, you know, they can crunch through bones, you know, larger than your, your upper arm there. I mean, just the bone diameter seven centimeters, they can break through a giraffe, a giraffe femur. I mean, it's extraordinary what they can do with those, with those jaws. Now, can't they, in my notes, it says they can dispatch and eat a 400-pound zebra in 25 minutes? Yeah, we've actually timed a lot of a lot of these feeding events because it's just <laughs> astonishing how fast they can make an animal disappear. Yeah, you know, they can eat an entire wildebeest, which is three times their body mass, in um, as little as 13 minutes. Same and with the topi. And, really? Yeah, so it goes from a living, running, breathing animal to a little bloody patch on the ground with the rumen lying there, you know, the rumen contents and that's it. That's all that's left. They've gone off with all the pieces and eaten everything else. It's just amazing. In 13, they literally disappear in 13 minutes. Right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Now, so what is the, okay. So they have like a 25% success, you know, kill rate. What have you seen like with lions in the Mara? I mean, I mean, have you seen more of the lions scavenging from the hyenas, you know, or vice versa? What has your experience been or your, your take? Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I don't know who, who does it more often. They seem to basically do it equally from one another. Um, you know, let's see, right now the hyenas outnumber lions. I think the lions have been much more susceptible to, um, you know, they don't run away like they are like they should when somebody approaches them with a spear or whatever. And so they, you know, they, they I think their numbers are really declining pretty severely. So these days, I think the hyenas are probably scavenging from lions more than vice versa. But it used to be the opposite, where there were a lot of lions in the park and um, they were, yeah, they were scavenging from the hyenas. You know, most of the times that we saw them interacting, it was lions stealing food from hyenas, not the other way around. And let's just talk about the about the Masemara because it, it, it you know it is like a national reserve, but there is issue with human and animal conflict. Can we go into that really quick? Yeah, the Maasai Mara is sort of interesting. It's just this uh, spectacularly beautiful place, um, but there's a river that transects it north-south, the Mara River, which divides it into an eastern and western area, and the western area is managed by a different organization than the eastern area. And um, the eastern area, basically, there's really sort of not much management going on that you'd notice, and in the west, it's very well managed, and, the you know, there's no people on foot. There's no people with spears. There's no livestock. Um, it's very pristine, much like it was when I first went there in the 70s. But um, in the east, the you know, the there's so many livestock grazing in the eastern part of the reserve that you can actually see their trails in and out of the reserve from outer space now. It's, it's getting pretty bad. From outer space? Yeah, you can see you can see all the, the, the cattle tracks on, on satellite photos very easily now. So anyway, um, uh, you know, it's something that, you know, it's, it's their reserve and they can do what they want with it, but it's just run by the local people. But, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, what's happened is that there's a lot of private conservancies have been, have gone up, um, on the Northern side of the reserve, leaving, uh, you know, a little Island of people and livestock. And that little Island has tens of thousands of people living on it now with no place to graze their cattle. And because the people in the Northern conservancies, the private conservancies enforce the rules better than the people in um, the Eastern part of the reserve itself. At least that's the way it looks to me. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing a tragedy of the commons where uh, an awful lot of livestock are being brought into the, 
um, reserved pretty much every day. They sneak them in at night, and they've taken all the bills off of them, but that's still happening. It's very obvious. Yeah, when I was in, I was staying, I'm assuming, I was staying near, um, like, like the Talek River in, 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 in one of the camps. And I remember in the evening hearing bells and i was like what's going on and my my friend who is a researcher with the vulture research project who you know lives in kenya is like oh yeah that's you know the moss like grazing the cattle and i was like well isn't that illegal like and it's just anyway he's like yeah well it is what it is so um i i mean are they having more issues with the lions i feel like lions are more or less in the spotlight of that human animal conflict are hyenas in the same predicament i mean i guess i never honestly really thought too much about the hyenas you hear mainly of like the lions attacking the cattle and having the issues is it i mean are hyenas equally as affected yeah and, and in fact right now because lion numbers have gone down the hyenas are the main problem animal in terms of killing livestock around the edges of the masai mara at least the eastern side of it um so yeah that's that's a big that's a big concern and um you know it it there are husbandry practices that could be adopted that would stop all, you know, all depredation events involving livestock. But, um, you know, I, I guess they're too expensive for most of the local people to um, put up these predator-proof corrals. Um, and where the hyenas have done, I think, probably most damage is, you know, to to to. Because t- tourists were complaining about visiting a place where there were so many cattle, they said, I didn't pay to come to a cattle ranch in East Africa, you know. So um, the authorities started putting pressure on the local people to only graze at night. And so they take these what can often be thousands and thousands of cows in in a single group at night and then they – get them where they want to spread out and graze and then they graze. And then before the sun comes up in the morning, they try and get them all back together and herd them out of the park. But they, as I said, they've taken all the bells off of them so they can do all this more surreptitiously. And um, they often leave cows behind. And I tell you what, our hyenas are very good cleanup guys when there are livestock left in the park. You know, sometimes we'll see them eating four or five cows in a single morning that have been left behind and gotten lost in the bushes and, you know, wow, oh, there's a blackhead cow, there's a whitehead cow, there's a brown speckled cow, you know, you see the you see the hyenas just eating the remains of these things, and you know they've killed them because they're sitting ducks. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, because they, I mean, it's just like taking meat into like an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's like something's going to happen. <laughs> like, it's like, you know what I mean? It's just, it's easy yeah. food, right? I mean, it's, why would you want to go chase a topi or a zebra when you have a, a big cow right there? Yeah, and, I, and you know, and you do feel very badly for, for you know local folks because if um, you know if a hyena um, kills a cow, that's that's a significant fraction of of the person's wealth that that they've just taken out, and you know to retaliate, sometimes the local people actually will put poison carcasses out. You've, since you were there with the vulture people, you probably know all about this. And the hyenas, you know, we've lost twenty five hyenas in a single morning with those kinds of things. Oh my God! And that's and are they still using uh, furidan? Is that what the, that odorless that odorless um, what is it like an odorless pesticide that even kills flies? Yeah, boy, you see the flies landing on the carcasses of the whatever they've saturated with this stuff. It's sort of pinkish, like Pepto Bismol. It's just horrible. And boy, you know, flies just kill right over dead. So does everything. You know, we go over there and there's dead cheetah, dead jackals, oh dead vultures, dead eagles. God. It's re- it's really not, and and the, the the craziest thing is that when they do that, they don't have any idea whether they've actually knocked out the hyena who committed the crime. So we're trying, you know, it's just a shotgun approach to, um, 
to you know to to solving the the depredation problem. And you know, one of my grad students is actually working on um, a, a method to determine exactly what each individual hyena has eaten recently, so that you can tell. Okay, is there one individual who goes and kills livestock day after day after day? Because if so. Um, that individual should be taken out of the population, translocated or, you know, euthanized, whatever the, the authorities decide to do with it. Because if it's hurting these people um, in that way, day after day, that's that's bad. And on the other hand, it might be one hyena just sort of happens upon, you know, a livestock uh, corral or group of livestock every day and each, uh, each day a different hyena is committing the crime. So we just don't know that yet. Is it hard not getting frustrated? I mean, you've been doing this for many years. So do you have a system down? Because I would be irate. Because, I mean, if you're studying these animals 30 plus years and, I mean, you know, obviously different individuals, but it's like, my God, I mean, is it just hard? Just don't you just want to scream sometimes or go to the Maasai and be like, stop? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, you feel really terrible. And the worst thing is um, for all the adult females who had cubs living at at a communal den you know nobody else will nurse those cubs once those moms die and so you then if you you found the, the mother's dead bodies lying around near this poison carcass and then you have to go and for the next month watch these babies slowly starve to death and it's just the most heartbreaking thing ever yeah did you have to develop thick skin going in to you know starting to study hyenas because i'll tell you what i mean you know the the you know watching them you know take down prey and i mean just their social structures it's a very ruthless society right did you have to develop thick skin for that um yeah i mean i think um i probably had it to start with otherwise i would have been deterred uh i've had grad students go there and go Ooh, no this is too hard i don't, like <laughs> I don't want it <laughs> right but um yeah, no, I, I just I fell in love with the place and the animals. And so um, if I thought I couldn't go back there, my heart would be broken. It would be terrible. I really love that place. Uh-huh. And I, I love the people there. Yeah. And so and how often are you there? Because you're there every year for several months, correct? Yeah, I because I'm a university professor, I have to be here to teach classes annoyingly uh, <laughs> most of the year. But I'd still be living in Kenya full time if I could, but um, that's not very realistic anyway. Uh, so from typically the you know first of May to the end of July, I'm I'm in Kenya. Man, are you just counting down the days just until May to get back there? Yeah, actually, I have to go back in November for a meeting, so I'm going back soon. Oh, you have to. Oh, I'm so jealous. I. I felt this innate, and I don't know if it's a biological, but this innate feeling of just being at home in Africa. I seriously wanted to stay in Kenya. I, I, I don't know what, it just was like this amazing feeling that I've never felt in my life. And I don't know if you're looking at me, you're like, man, this guy's full of crap. But I'm serious, like I felt it. Have you felt that kind of feeling? Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, yeah, I've traveled all over the world and there's, you know, even elsewhere in Africa, you don't find uh, places where it's so easy to see that many animals in such short order. It's pretty extraordinary. You know, in South Africa, there's some nice spots, but um, a lot of it's very bushy and it's hard to see the animals. In Kenya, it's just this open, nice grassland. You can see everything beautifully and there's just an extraordinary diversity of wildlife there and it just blows, blows you away, literally. I, I really like 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 the, the the dark skies or if it, you know what I mean like the cloud oh my god it's just yeah amazing so Dr. Um, Holcamp take me through a day let's pretend I am with you I'm one of your research students which would be like a dream come true but uh, take me through a day of uh, you know of you know working of you know researching hyenas in the Mara okay um, yeah typically we we get up 
very early in the dark. You know, we're right at the equator there, so it's sort of pretty regularly 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness. And so we get up at about 4.30, and um, by 5 or 5.30, we're driving away from camp, and we send out one or two vehicles with people in them. Each car is equipped with um, radio antennas mounted on the roof and receivers and scanners inside. And, you know, everybody's main research tools are... Um, a series of photo albums for each of the clans that we might encounter that morning and um, a pair of binoculars and a, a DVR digital voice recorder that we dictate notes into. And so um, then we'll typically find the first hyenas in the dark via telemetry, by tra- homing in on their radio signal. Um, but then, uh, you know, depending on what they're doing, if they're just lying around doing nothing interesting, then we just record who's present together and what they're up to and drive on and look for more animals. And, uh, you know, we, we have um, six different study clans that we're working with. Each clan contains, on average, about 50, 55 hyenas. And so we stay out and watch them um, until typically 30 or 9, which is when it starts to get quite hot there. And... Uh, the hyenas typically will just go to bed for the day. They'll go find a nice shady, cool place and lie around until late in the afternoon. And then late, so we go back to camp and, um, I'm typically working at my computer most of the day. Other people are doing things like repairing tents or, or preparing meals or transcribing notes or, you know, filling liquid nitrogen tanks from a spare tank and so forth. And just doing all the regular camp maintenance stuff we need to do. And then we go back out at about five every afternoon and stay out till about seven thirty or eight. And, um, come back in and have dinner and th- go straight to bed and get up and do it all over again. So it's okay. really fun. Each, each day is different. Wow. Now, do you like, so what has your research found? Cause you went there initially, excuse me, to study their social structures and why males have some different hierarchies like in captivity. What have you found? Well, the answer to that question seemed to be that in captivity, the males couldn't disperse. We actually have found that even in the wild, um, young males continue to dominate adult females as long as they live in their natal group. They, they assume their mother's ranks and um, stay there, but almost 100% of surviving males will disperse at some point between when they're reproductively mature at 24 months and um, when they're about five, five, five or six years old. At some point in there, they leave and go to a new clan after exploring around and checking out a lot of the neighboring clans. And when they disperse, that is when we see male subordination emerge. They they are very grovelly to every individual they encounter, including tiny cubs that they could easily harm. Uh, but they, you know, are very um, subservient to everybody in the new group. And um, I think it must be hard for them to become socially accepted if they're not socially subservient to everybody else. And so that's where female dominance emerges, and because um, the females are you know, they continue to be aggressive and only will submit to females who are higher ranking than they are. Um, but then, you know, so uh, our original study of rank acquisition led us to a study of dispersal behavior and we figured out where males go. And, and then when they enter a new clan, they start out because they're, they have no social support there and they're behaving submissively to everyone, um, they really start literally at the bottom of the clan. So that means that, say, the son of an alpha female in clan A, who of his own volition one day just picks up and moves to the clan next door, and he can go from being ranked, you know, say, first out of 50 or 60 hyenas to rat last out of 50 or 60 hyenas. So you know that there's got to be a big reproductive fitness payoff to do that. Yeah. And I was, what is their mortality rate? The dispersing males? Yes. Um, 
that's quite high, actually. Dispersal is a dangerous process for pretty much every animal that's been studied, including the hyenas. And because they're going to places where they don't know where the food is, they don't know where the lions hang out, you know. And lions, historically, are the main mortality source for hyenas. Now it's humans, of course, but, you know, as recently as early 2000s, it was still lions. Um and so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't actually know. Let's see, it sort of depends on the male's rank, you know, because we had these animals co- radio collared so that we could follow their dispersal movements. And if you just look at where those animals are, you know, we had close something like ten sons of of high ranking females that dispersed, and a year later they were all doing great in their new clans, and all were still alive and everything. All all ten of the low ranking sons were dead. So. Um, you know, I don't know the exact percentage of, of males that die, but um, the low-ranking males don't do very well. So you said that you, you know, have thick skin, but <clears throat> I'm so sorry, I have a frog in my a frog in my throat. Um, you said that you don't, you know, you have thick skin, but is it hard not to get emotional sometimes if you do get attached to one of the animals you've been following for years, or you see something like this, or are you just jaded? Is it just like, yeah, work? No, no, you you really get attached to them, and. I was teaching a study abroad class there with 18 undergrads, and uh, 1999 we were having a, a breakfast in, in the lodge where we were staying, and one of my grad students came in and she said, I think Brackettshoulder's dying, and Brackettshoulder was the alpha female who'd been there since 1979 as, wow. as um, well, I guess she was only, she yeah, she'd been an alpha female since the early 80s anyway, and um, and she's the only hyena I ever knew to die of old age, basically to die of some kind of health problem rather than, you know, a violent death. Most of them die violent deaths. And, and she was, she was dying. We did an autopsy later of kidney failure. And I'm sure those, all the kids who came out and saw this lady weeping over this old beat up hyena must've thought I was nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how old was she? Cause I was going to ask what their lifespan was. Well, the oldest ones that we know of on both sexes have been 26 years old, but um, wow. she was, I think she was only 19 when she died. Wow. And are they pretty, I mean, aren't they pretty territorial as well, like regarding if they if they encounter another clan? Yeah, the each clan defends, well, at least in East Africa, each clan defends a communal territory and um, that territory, you know, the prey base moves back and forth across it. But on average, there's enough food in that territory to support the hyenas who live there. And, uh, uh, yeah, when they encounter another clan um, in their territory uh, or even at the border, you often see what we call clan wars where they go back and forth in these sort of fronts and lines, uh, you know, dependent. The team that wins is the one that has the most participants. Wow. It's pretty simple rule so when i was there we would always see lone hyenas which was so crazy because i always had watched the national geographic specials and you, you have seen them all together and is that them just like you know patrolling their territory like because i just i always saw lone hyenas only once did i see at like a carcass i think i saw two but i just saw lone ones no we've seen as many as 56 together um and um even that wasn't the whole clan um, typically, lone ones are not the ones um, patrolling territorial boundaries. When they, when they go on border patrols, they tend to be in 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 larger groups, and there's a lot of scent marking and a lot of excitement, and you know, um, just walking right along the edge of the territory. And it's usually prompted by smelling an alien, I think, in their in their home territory. But yeah, the the you know they're they're top carnivores, and um, 
what they what they typically have to do in order to feed themselves is to go off alone, especially if they're low ranking, because if they're in the presence of a high ranking individual, that high ranking individual will steal their food just in a heartbeat. So the low ranking ones often go off alone and, and go hunt and then they eat, you know, they can only even eat for just a few minutes. They can tank up and eat something like, you know, 20 or 30 pounds of food in 15 minutes. I mean, it's pretty impressive how much food they can consume and how fast, but um yeah, let me, oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was just going to say that's that's the main reason you find them alone, just so they can get away from the competitors. Okay, very interesting. Okay, um, so w- just regarding the prey and the Masai Mara, what are you seeing that they prefer the most, or is there one prey you know animal they you know are consuming the most? Um, well, I, it's not the animal that they consume the most because it's one of the hardest animals to kill, but. Um, my my belief is that they actually prefer zebra above all things and i think if you gave them a cafeteria style experiment that would become pretty clear it's hard to manipulate those kinds of things in okay. and that's such an experiment in nature but you know hans crick described it too in his book where you see hyenas walking through herds giant herds of wildebeest where there's little calves that are stumbling around with a broken leg and they just walk right by it. You know, they see it, and but they have zebra on the mind and they go through all the wildebeest and find a group of zebra and then they hunt zebra. And uh, that's the kind of thing that makes me think they really like zebra best. Wow. And I mean, you probably, how many hunts have you seen in 30 years? Can you just give me a rough estimate? What do you think? Um, let's see. We saw something like 278 in the first five years, but then um, I'm spending less time there now. So, um, boy, I don't know. I've got a student pulling all those things from our archive field notes right now, but I guess, oh, you know, at least a thousand. We've seen a thousand lion hyena interactions, and that's those are much rarer than hunts. So, wow. And I remember I have a really good friend, uh, Jerry, who like he runs, you know, a tour guides in Africa, and he says it's so funny because tourists that will go on his tour, you know, are obviously they're like, I want to see, you know, I, I want to see a hunt, I want to see a hunt, but then when they actually do, they're like, oh my, like a lot of them are like, oh, never mind, like you know, because it's not that glamorous, you know, you don't hear the music in the background, all the, you know, like you see in the nature documentaries. No, it's and it's really it's really hard to watch um, these kills because sometimes it takes the antelope a long time to die. And, you know, the neither the wild dogs or the hyenas have what they call a killing bite like the big cats do, um, which typically will, you know, either break the neck or, or suffocate the prey animal. Instead, the, you know, all the canids and the spotted hyenas will kill their prey just by eating them. And so, you know, it's 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 really hard to watch um, if you're in- like, yeah, so they just they just d- disembowel their prey, basically, just to dispatch them, correct? Yeah, and uh, you know, all you can hope is that the poor animal's in shock. <laughs> yeah. you know, wow. Okay, so can I talk about something really quick? Have, I'm sure you've seen this documentary. Hold on, hold on. One, one, one. Okay, hold on. Oh. Have you seen this one, Eternal Enemies? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I actually had them on the show a few months ago. I was so starstruck. I was like, oh my god. Okay, so I saw this when I was a kid, and I have to ask you about something because when I was a kid, I didn't understand this. But this is the first documentary where they talk about hyenas having a pseudo penis. <laughs> I have to ask you about this. And so, uh, can we yeah. talk about that really quick? Sure. Um, yeah, um, it's an it's an enlarged clitoris, and spotted hyenas are the only mammals that actually urinate, copulate, and give birth through this pipe-like organ. Um, got to hurt like heck but um you know it tears pretty radically when they first go to have their first litter and then forever after there's a big stripe of pink scar tissue down the the posterior surface of it that you can 
determine that a female's had her first litter, even if you never see that litter. But, um, yeah, it's a very strange um, device, and um, their vaginal labia are also folded over and filled, fused and filled with connective tissue, and um, that that forms a structure that remarkably resembles the male scrotal sac. And, you know, none of us understand completely why that structure is there. Well, you know, why do they have these bizarre external genitalia? You know, I think, I think Marion East is correct to think that it has something to do with um, choice of, you know, which males gets to copulate and which males get to fertilize her eggs. But um, it's a very, very strange device. Wow, thank you for going into that. And this is a kid-friendly show, but I just—it's interesting. It's kind of just like you know, they—they they truly are one of the most unusual animals on the planet. And I mean, do you still feel like? I mean, there's probably still so much we you know can learn from them. Yeah, I think there is. I mean, they can eat anthrax and not die. How do they do that? Um, you know, they're really amazingly resistant to toxins and. Um, you know, snake venom, for example, I saw, saw one adult female get bitten in the face right between her eyes by what was a very big cobra. We saw the snake and, uh, you know, she was fine. And then her kid was playing around in the grass with something interesting. And so she's curious and she got up to see what it was. And she stuck her head down there and came out with these puncture wounds on either side of her nose that just started welling up with blood. And she got started staggering around and she was one of my favorite hyenas ever. So I was very sad and I thought, Oh God, we're never going to see her again. But Three days later, there she was. She came out of the bushes, and she was disheveled and looked like she'd been feeling poorly, but now she's fine. And then she lived another several years after that. It's amazing. Really? And are you able, I mean, have you ever had to intervene if something like that has happened, or are you completely, like, hands off, let nature take its course? No, only if we have caused something, um, you know, will I intervene? For example, if we have just darted a hyena and a lion emerges over the crest of the hill and it sees this drunken hyena, they're really attracted to anything that acts odd. So the lion, you know, would be inclined to come racing over. But um, no, then I will, you know, drive at the lion with the car, get out of the car and wave at it and make it scare it and make it go away because no, no hyena is dying on my watch because of some miserable miserable excuse of a problem like that that's terrible okay yeah that's good and is it hard i'm sure you've seen this and this would be so hard for me and i i mean i i have you i'm sure you've seen you know hyenas you know you know kill cheetah cubs i mean leopard cubs lion cubs oh, oh you haven't i never have no i've oh. read about other people observing that but I, i've never seen it and uh certainly seen a lot of hyenas you know have been killed by hyena by lions but i've never never seen the reverse and uh, you know, my guess is that's true that they would have, um, you know, the same incentive as those um, hyenas in uh, in Botswana. There, the, in the Eternal Enemies film, you know, to um, be be wanting to take out a competitor. But um, it, that's at least the theoretical rationale for why these lions kill so many hyenas. But um, you know, if they got a hold of a young one, I would expect, yeah, maybe they would kill it. But um, carnivores aren't particularly good to eat. And, you know, so even when lions kill hyenas, they don't eat them. They just walk away. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then have you seen a shift in like the public persona of hyenas, like from the Mara? Cause you, you know, started in 1988 to now, have you seen a public shift of perception? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've been working with film crews and, um, you know, print media people for, for, since the project started in an effort to 
um, change public perceptions of these animals because, as you mentioned at the outset, most pe- people think of them as as awful. And, um, you know, Ernest Hemingway called them horrible names in his Green Hills of Africa. And just in general, um, people don't like them. And they've been typically, historically, an unpopular zoo exhibit. And, you know, we actually um, have done this study where we timed tour vehicles watching the hyenas. And, you know, even if the hyenas were doing something really interesting, the average time that these a tour vehicle would stay parked at, say, a hyena den or a kill where the hyenas were doing, you know, feeding, would be one minute and 38 seconds in, in the late 80s. And now it's up to four, almost five minutes, which is, um, you know, suggesting that people are finding them more interesting these days. And, you know, um We've had a lot of film crews out there, and people, if you just, you know, if you just watch them, they're actually really interesting and cool, and the cubs are just the cutest things ever. You can't not love hyena cubs. Yeah, and oh my goodness, so so now it's shifted up. That's amazing that people, yeah, I was so fascinated with them. Are you, I mean, do you think it's helping hyenas that they aren't as charismatic as lions, just like, let's say, like, regarding, like, trophy hunting? I mean, because you never hear of anyone wanting to go and, you know, hunt oh, hyenas. No. Yeah, you can look online and you'll see all kinds of hunters kneeling on their dead hyenas. So, so yeah, they're 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 taken by sport hunters. Probably not as as popular in that domain as lions are. Obviously, people you know those kinds of folks like to um, kill lions, uh, but they apparently also like. I mean, I've seen civets mounted on the walls of and jackals mounted on the walls of people's homes here in Michigan. You know, they thought, wow, how hard is it to shoot one of those? You just attract it to bait and kill it and it's just doesn't seem very sporting to me oh no i completely agree i think it's disgusting okay so where do you see yourself okay do you see yourself just retiring in the mara just with the hyenas well um no um because i've got a lot of (laughs) responsibilities here now but um um i'm hoping that some of my um current and former students will um, band together and and try and take take over the project when it's time for me to retire we'll see because we now have you know um 31 and a half years of information on these animals and we've been following the same lineages um all that time and um, we know exactly how everyone's related to everyone else and we know their social ranks and we know their reproductive histories and everything and so um you know, we can now look at something that happens early in life and say, okay, well, what are the fitness consequences of that? How does that affect your survival and reproduction in the long run? And anyway, so it would be a shame to have to stop it. But, um, you know, there's getting to be more and more and more bureaucracy associated with um, conducting research in Kenya or anywhere in the world for that matter. And so, you know, you have to, it's not for the faint hearted, you have to be really tenacious and really want it to work out to put up with it all. Yeah, how difficult would it be to to work under you to be a researcher? Like, is it a very intense process for students who seriously want to, you know, pursue a career or want want experience working with you out in the field? Yeah, I actually um, regularly take students um, to work with me. Um, I ask that they stay several months because it takes. Um, really a long time for the students to get good enough at, at, at working with the animals out there to be assets rather than just liabilities, you know? So, um, cause they're liabilities cause the average American kid has no idea how to change a tire or drive a stick shift or any of the things that you really need to do to work there. But, um, so my cars take a beating <laughs> but anyway, that's it. You know, I really, that's one of my favorite parts of the job is interacting with the students who live there with me. So, um, you know, they typically go out, will go out and I turn 
like a million dollars worth of equipment over to them and 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 and, and my I trust my Kenyan employees to make sure that nothing really terrible happens but anyway because they're really great do you ever take people to come help you who aren't students at Michigan State University no in order to get permission to have a, a, you know attachments to my project um, they they need to be students unfortunately okay well would you accept me for a couple days to come film something sure Oh, you just shook your head. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I would love to. I actually have a confession. I was there, you know, obviously with the Peregrine Fund, with the Vulture Research Center. But I remember being in Kenya thinking, God, I would love to just go follow that vehicle. That Oh, I just would. I would see your vehicles around. And I just was so jealous. And I, you know, Dr. Holcamp, thank you so much just for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. Sure. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. Is there any lasting piece of advice for young people listening to the show who want to become researchers? Um, no, I mean, I think just um, try getting involved in, in research, even if it's not exactly what you want at the outset, just to make sure you like it. Cause you know, if you, when you see those things on TV, sometimes they're made to look very glamorous and there's, you know, there's always a, a certain amount of non glamorous work that goes with it. And so, you know, if you like it, um, just stick with it and you can make it happen. Okay, and this is completely off topic, but can I ask you a question? Sure. So when I, I've only been to Kenya twice, and I loved hyenas. I was so fortunate to see hyenas, right? But the one animal that eluded me the most, can you guess it? Uh, let's see. I would guess something like a zorilla. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. The smelliest animal on the planet. <laughs> Have you ever seen a zorilla, by, by the way? Yeah, we see them fairly often. Really? And can you explain what a gorilla is? Because people are probably like, what, did she just say a gorilla? What is she talking about? Oh, no, it's a little, um, it's a, an African mustelid, uh, it's a skunk relative that looks sort of remarkably like a, a striped skunk. And it's got black and white stripes and it's odiferous like a skunk is as well. And, and yeah, we sometimes just find them walking around in the dark. How crazy. It just sides note. Um, I was doing a segment for the, uh, today show going over animals. And one of the handlers was like, have you tried a Zorilla? And anyway, they were telling me how stinky it was. I think they would never book me again if it stunk up studio one a, cause they're so powerful. That smell. Yeah. Pretty strong. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever seen a honey badger? I have in Botswana, but I haven't in Kenya. Are they, are they in, I mean, they're, they are in Kenya, right? I suspect they're there, but I honestly have never seen one, nor have I talked to anybody else in the Mara who's ever seen one there. Uh, what about an aardvark? Yeah, I've seen aardvarks. Are they pretty common? Uh, based on the frequency with which you drive into their holes, I would say yes, but um, you don't see them very often. They're really shy. Okay. What about uh, rock pythons? Yeah, in fact, um, a rock python ate an adult hyena last year, two years ago now. That was really a trip. Whew. What? Yeah, this rock python, you know, one of my students emailed me to say, you know, if somebody told you that a snake ate a hyena, what would you say? And I'd say, nonsense, impossible. And then then they showed me this video footage of this python eating this hyena. And it's just incredible that it was an adult hyena. And the snake somehow got it in, in a way that, you know, it got its head around the head and ate the whole thing and then it lay there for the next month with this giant lump in its stomach <laughs> oh my gosh i mean but do you i mean they're are they pretty more reclusive like the giant snakes or i mean have you seen several of them though like just in the mara right um yeah uh, a lot of them have been killed uh because 
you know, local people aren't wild about snakes, and they have good reason not not to be wild about them. But um, yeah, so I've seen the biggest ones, I guess, around Ambicelli, but um, but there's there's some pretty big snakes in the Mara. Yeah, big rock pythons. Well, okay, so back to what I was saying. So the one animal that eluded me was the leopard. Never oh really? Yeah, that's our, if you're not there for I didn't see a leopard for my first six months there, but some people get lucky and see them their first afternoon. So I don't get it. Some people get off the plane in the Mara and they see a leopard kill. There was someone in our camp that was like, "Oh, we just saw a kill," and it was like, "What?" Anyway, yeah, I did yeah. not see the leopard. Yeah. Right. That's a sorry. <laughs> yeah, I I did see the black rhino though. What did you say? Yeah. You'll have to go back. I'll have to go back, <laughs> Doctor Holcamp. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Okay, you're welcome. Thank Take you so care. much. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.